I don't know if you've ever had a chance to visit uh, different ministry organizations, maybe around the city, maybe around the world. You've been in places. And what I mean by that is like a place that like is set aside for like a youth organization or, you know, I don't know, a food pantry or something like that. I remember when one time I was visiting a place in a different city and I walked in and right there um, in big letters, they had, um, they said the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And I've always remembered that. It's very memorable, isn't it? And it's also very instructive of what do we do? We keep the main thing the main thing. And that's our main thing, to remember that. So even if it, like, the organization was really like built around, it was a parachurch ministry, it was built around another kind of ministry, you know, but wasn't really. But they said, you know what, the main thing is to, to remember why we're here, keep it the main thing. And in this crazy, chaotic world that we live in, it's important to remember the most important thing right? It's important to remember the main thing and make that the main thing. And that is, is that Jesus Christ is supreme. Jesus Christ is supreme. Jesus is greater than anyone and anything in this entire world. And we know that Satan is going to continue to wreak havoc. Sin is going to have its way. There's going to be people who get sick and people who die. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars that's going to continue and increase. And destruction of all different kinds is going to come from all different directions that we least expect and so we're living in this sinful world this fallen world and in a deeply divided world what could possibly unite us it's not going to be a politician or economic system or even a sports team unfortunately (sighs) don't want to talk about that but the only hope that we have is to recognize that jesus is the one who is lord over all and contemplating his supremacy will put everything else into perspective in our lives, over in, into our hearts as well. And so we are about to undertake this journey through the book of Hebrews. I couldn't be more excited about diving into Hebrews. This book of the Bible was written to encourage Christians during a time of trial, and it does so by focusing on the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And there are some really unique things about this Bible that makes it unlike any other book in the Bible. And so I want to begin our time today through this sermon series and through this with uh, a few words of introduction about what the Bible is to give us an idea of the book of Hebrews. And then I want to look at the first verses that Tom just read, the first three or four verses here, that actually form an introduction that talk, in a way it's the whole book in a nutshell, right there in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. And so that's where I want us to be today. And I... Basically, the big idea today is that God has broken into our crazy world with the good news that Christ is supreme and his work is sufficient. That's the good news, that God has broken into this crazy world, and we need to be reminded that Jesus Christ is supreme and his work is sufficient. And this letter, this book of the Bible, Hebrews, is unique because it begins like an essay. It begins with those powerful words. And then it it moves on and it it reads kind of like a sermon, but then it ends in Hebrews 13 like a letter. It looks like like a lot of the other letters in the way they ended, the way they end. And um, your book of the Bible that you're holding there might just say Hebrews as the title. Mine, it actually says the letter to the Hebrews. Originally, it said to the Hebrews was the title. And so based on the contents of this book and what we have from general church history, um, we believe that this was written, you can tell that it's written to Jewish converts to Christianity. Not first generation followers of Christ, but people who had heard the gospel 
They were converted, and they were now following Christ. And the people who first heard this for the very first time, they had to have an intimate knowledge of the Old Testament because a lot of, there's a lot of illustrations in the book of Hebrews, and they all point back to the uh, temple time and the Levitical priesthood and how not necessarily how things were operating in Jerusalem at that time, whenever they would have first heard this, but going back in history to, um, to how the, the temple and sacrificial system took place many years earlier. We also see that the author of the book of Hebrews quotes extensively from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So back during Jesus' time, they didn't necessarily, um, you know, the original language of the Old Testament was Hebrew, but there was a Greek translation, and that's what most of the people used because they spoke Greek. And that's where the book of Hebrews is quoting from for most of the time, not quoting from the Hebrew, but quoting from the Greek. So we know that the people that are hearing this they understood Greek. They, that was what they were familiar with. They were Greek-speaking people somewhere in the Roman Empire. Probably in uh, Rome or Alexandria, they, this letter was not given or spoken or written to the people of, of Jerusalem and Judea at that time, but probably in the greater Roman world. For us today, Hebrews is fantastic because it helps us as modern-day Christians to be able to understand how we can read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. It helps us to make sense of how the Old Testament, in many ways, was a shadow of the real thing in the New Testament. And we can see how the Old Testament finds its reality in the supremacy of Christ that we see in the New Testament. So it's a very, very helpful book. It's a book that connects the Old and the New Testament, probably unlike any other book, because like I said, a lot of the illustrations, a lot of the explanations, he's explaining how the Old Testament pointed ahead, pointed forward, pointed to the real thing in Christ that we see in the New Testament. You know, one of the most interesting things about the book of Hebrews, though, is that we don't know for certain who the author is. Now, in order for a book to be recognized as part of the canon of Scripture, the collection of books that were recognized by the early church as being a part of Scripture, there was a couple rules that they had to follow, they, that they kind of just generally accepted. One was that the letter had to be written by an apostle or by someone who had firsthand uh, eyewitness accounts or experience with an apostle. So, ex for example, Matthew was one of the apostles, right? John was one of the apostles. Now, Mark, uh, he had he used Peter as his source, and Peter was one of the apostles. And then we have a lot of the letters of the New Testament, where they a lot of them were written by Paul, who also had, uh, you know, Paul had firsthand eyewitness account of Jesus Christ after the resurrection. And so he considered himself an apostle, not like the, one of the original 12, but an apostle nonetheless. And so Hebrews is unique because we really don't know for certain who the author of Hebrews is. The earliest church tradition says that Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews. An early church father named Clement of Alexandria said that Paul wrote it in Hebrew and that Luke translated it into the Greek. And this was agreed upon by Eusebius in origin. Zane Hodges, a seminary professor, made an interesting point when he said, the tradition of Pauline authorship is very old and has never been decisively disproved. And then you have J. Vernon McGee, another 20th century theologian, who wrote his entire thesis on Pauline authorship of Hebrews, and he said after studying the book and all aspects of the book, he couldn't believe any person could believe that anyone else wrote it except except the Apostle Paul. And so a person could easily make the claim that Paul was the author of Hebrews. But wait, 
a person could also make the claim that Paul was not the author of Hebrews. Usually, Paul identifies himself, doesn't he? I, Paul, I'm writing this letter. He doesn't, we don't see that in the book of Hebrews. We also, um, if you look at the grammar and the syntax and the phraseology found in Hebrews, it's not like Paul's other letters, where if you read Ephesians and Colossians and Galatians, you're like, oh, like it sounds similar in a lot of ways. It's the same author. You can tell it's the same author. So they've written in a different style, and Hebrews is not like that. In fact, uh, one person said it's funny that Hebrews, where Paul sometimes will, like on Romans, go off on a tangent for a long time. Hebrews, if he does get off on a tangent, he's back on, you know? He doesn't, Paul kind of wondered sometimes, and you don't see that in Hebrews. It's actually more succinct. It's more, it's written better, if you would say. It's more put together. So it's not like Paul's other writings. And in Hebrews chapter 2, it appears as if the author himself um, was a recipient of the gospel and not a first eye, first-hand eyewitness account, like Paul said in Galatians, that Paul said he, he didn't receive it from anybody else, none of the apostles. He received it from the Lord Jesus himself. That's it. Well, in Hebrews 2, it makes it sound like he received it from somebody else. And actually, if you go back, even so I mentioned the early first church fathers, early church fathers at first, you know, Clement of Alexandria, some of the earliest people say it was definitely Paul, and you're going to have to like convince history that it wasn't Paul who wrote the letter. Well, one early commentator who wrote in the early 200s, a man by the name of Tertullian, he said that Barnabas wrote Hebrews. Again, he didn't really give a lot of evidence except for like the way it was written and, and the fact that uh, he did say that the author of Hebrews had a relationship with Timothy. And that's when some people say, well, Paul had a very good relationship with Timothy. Well, you know, other people did too, right? Barnabas did and Luke did because he was a traveling companion with Paul. And also, the, whoever wrote this uh, also knew the audience. And so that could have been Paul. It could have been Barnabas. Martin Luther said that it was written by Apollos. John Calvin suggested Luke, Paul's traveling companion. Or actually, John Calvin also suggested that maybe Clement of Alexandria wrote it. And then maybe he said, oh, Paul wrote it. We don't really know. Others have suggested Stephen, Jude, Philip, the deacon or evangelist, Silas, and some people even say Priscilla and Aquila. Remember them um, from the book of Acts? When you consider the letters of the New Testament, um, most are written to be, uh, to, to be said and to be read as one book. For instance, what I'm saying is that Paul sometimes wrote a letter to the churches of Galatia, and he expected that letter to be spread then throughout the region to other churches, and they would read those in their entirety in front of the congregation. Hebrews is a book that makes sense when you hear it read aloud. In fact, it reads kind of like a sermon. I have a recording that I found, and I sent this in the email yesterday. I don't know if it went through or not. But I have a recording of a pastor who memorized the entire book of Hebrews. And then his church was doing a sermon series to the book of Leviticus. And once the, they ended the, the sermon series in Leviticus with him coming up and preaching the book of Hebrews from memory. The whole thing, he recited it. And so it's not just like somebody reading, but instead it sounds like a sermon, the way he delivered it. It's, it's wonderful. Sometimes I listen to it while I'm doing other things because it's just a neat way to listen to Scripture that it's, it's somebody saying it but not reading it. They're saying it like a sermon. And so I know this is just speculation, but it makes me wonder if, here's my idea, that maybe it was a sermon manuscript 
that someone wrote down and then was later edited into a letter in order to be sent out. Now, now that's just a guess on my part. Ultimately, we don't know. And that should be where we leave it, that ultimately we do not know. And the Holy Spirit has given us this letter and given us all that we need to know about this letter is that it is part of God's word. It can be trusted. Maybe God wanted it that way so that we didn't spend all this time talking about (laughs) who could be the author, right? And speculating so much like I've just done. But what is clear is that this is a letter that's part of the, um, that has been sustained by the Holy Spirit, has been recognized just like the other books of the, of, of the Bible, recognized by the, by the church as being part of Scripture. That was a gift to the church and is used for our edification. And so we should approach this book and allow, like Tom prayed, ask God to use his word to affect us in, on, in the only way that, that the Holy Spirit can use his word to affect us spiritually, to shape us, to form us, to make us more like Christ to help us in our understanding and and help us to see the Old Testament and how, like the book of Leviticus and the other parts of the Old Testament, how they point forward to Jesus Christ and his work and the finality of his work, that it is finished. And so let's look again at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. I love how it begins, long ago, at many times and in many ways. It almost sounds like four scores and seven years ago, doesn't it? You see why it kind of sounds like a sermon, like, Right out the bat, he doesn't mess around. No stupid story or funny joke or illustration. He just jumps right in, you know, like a, a good sermon should be, right? He just gets right into it. And he begins like that, and it reminds you of those first few words from Genesis 1-1 or John 1-1, reminding us that God is active. God has always been active from the very beginning. And the story of God's saving work in Jesus Christ didn't begin during the age of the Roman Empire But long ago, in narratives in the Old Testament, the account of Jesus' saving work begins at the very beginning of creation. Psalms 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. This is called general revelation, that God has revealed his glory through the natural world. And it's one way that God communicates or speaks through his creation to his creation, to us. It's why in Romans 1.20 it says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Many people will say sometimes that, well, I kind of believe in God. People who don't believe in the Bible sometimes, they say, well, I believe, I don't know, I believe in a, a God, but not the God that you hear in churches. I believe in a higher power. That's very popular with, among a lot of people to say they believe in, in a higher power or some kind of being or some kind of God. Well, I say, well, if, it, if, it's, if you believe in that, then doesn't it stand to reason that that God or that higher power could communicate? Of course, the person would say, well, yes, you know, if it's a higher power, he could communicate. And if he could communicate, couldn't, wouldn't he make himself known? Well, yeah, it stands to reason that he could do that. Well, if he could do that, understanding that God has done that, he has chosen to do so in the way he chooses, not necessarily in the way that we think is best. 
And the author of Hebrews basically begins by saying, God has spoken. God speaks. The true and living sovereign God speaks to man. False gods do not speak. And we would know nothing about God if he didn't speak to us. If he didn't communicate to us. Unless he has revealed himself to us, we wouldn't know about God. Francis Chan has a book titled, He is There and He is Not Silent. He says, it is nothing but pure grace on God's part for him to speak to us. We do not deserve life-giving words. If God could not or did not speak, we would be left in darkness or ignorance, which is true. I mean, the title of that book sums up, there is a God, he is there, and he is not silent. He has spoken. That's how Hebrews begins. God spoke long ago, many times and in many ways. There's a, a great diversity in the way that God chose to speak to people in the Old Testament. God utilized uh, prophets. He says he spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. In other words, these were people that God used to communicate his message to his people. And he did it in different ways. It wasn't just through prophets. When you think about the Old Testament, you think about the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Malachi and, and Habakkuk. You know, think of the prophets and God used them to give a message to his people. But even go back further, what do you see is God uh, spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai in thunder and in lightning with the voice of, of loudness. But then he spoke to Elijah through a still small voice. Ezekiel was informed by visions and Daniel was taught through dreams. God appeared to Abram in, in a human form and to Jacob as an angel. God even spoke to Balaam from his donkey. I mean, think about that. I wonder if... Uh, Balaam ever just like scratched his head and is like, okay, I talked to my donkey. I've never had an argument with my donkey. You know what I mean? But God opened the donkey's mouth and talked to him. And then basically Balaam got into an argument with him. But God in the Old Testament, you see many times in many ways, he used many different ways to get a hold of people and to talk to people, to communicate to people. Over the course of 1,800 years, the Old Testament was written in different books reflecting different historical times, locations and cultures and different genres from wisdom literature to history to poems. I mean, you see these different ways that God chose to communicate to his people. And God has given us his word, and it's all part of God's word, revealing God's, revealing God's self to us, revealing God revealing himself to us, his plan of redemption for his people. Like I said, sometimes in the church, we get too wrapped up in the New Testament, and we uh, focus a lot on the Gospels going forward, forgetting that that is like part two. And the Old Testament, we don't call it old because it's that much older. I mean, the New Testament is pretty old, right? Uh, depending on how you look at time. But I'm just saying, it's like the first part is the Old Testament, and then you have this New Testament is like part two. And so don't neglect part one is what I'm trying to say in order just to focus on part two. In fact, you might find it very helpful to have a better understanding of God's working all throughout the Old Testament. And that's what Hebrews does. He goes back and he, he pulls out these stories from the Old Testament that if we didn't have Hebrews today, it might be a little bit more confusing. But now it's like these light bulbs go off as we go through Hebrews and it's like, oh, okay, that's what God was doing back then. That's why God set it up in that way. And so don't just throw out the Old Testament as being not important. In a lot of ways, the Old Testament is the beginning of that story where the New Testament is the conclusion of the story that we see in Jesus Christ.
And that's why I like how in Hebrews 1, he, he says, long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But, he says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And that word but there, you see the division of time. So many Jewish people believe that all the time could be broken into before and after. You have the before and then you have the but God did this. And it's how Christians, how we mark time as well. Two ages, if you will. Two ages. The age before Christ, B.C., and the age after Christ, Anno Domenio, in the year of our Lord. That's how we've broken up our, our way of marking time as Christians. Now, I know today many people will say uh, B.C.E., before the common era, and C.E. as common era, but guess what? It's 2021, so... Who are, they, who, are they fool, who are they fooling, right? They're using the same years that we used before as B.C. and A.D., but they just call it B.C.E. and, and A and C.E. now. I just said a whole bunch of letters. I apologize. I'm confusing myself. What I'm saying is, is that what we see throughout all of time is that when Jesus came in, time was broken into two. And he says, long ago, this is how God worked, but now God has spoken to us through his Son. And God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, in the person of his son. And before he spoke in a lot of different ways, and now he chose to spoke through his son. It's the same message, but it's a new medium. We are living, another thing about this, this two different ways, two different time periods, is that we are now living in the last days. We are living in the last days. The Bible makes this very clear. Jesus Christ has come. And the promises of the Old Testament have found their fulfillment in Jesus. And so now we have a better picture. We have a conclusion that Jesus came and he died for our sins and he was buried and he rose again and he ascended into heaven and said he's coming back again. And when he comes back again, I mean, that's, that's it. That's the end of times. And so I, I do believe we are living in the last days, the last times, the, um, what he just says here, the last days in Hebrews 1, 2. The time period now that Jesus Christ is ruling in heaven and the gospel message is going forward. So God chose to speak to us before it was through the prophets and now it was through a greater prophet, a son, he says. The son is the fullest, most complete revelation of the father possible since the son shares the same divine nature as the father. Because the Son is the, the second member of the Trinity. And it says here that he's designated heir of all things. The writer of Hebrews is using traditional categories that his audience would have understood. Because to be an heir meant to be invested with everything of the Father. The Son was given full authority. If you were to do business with the Son, that was equal to doing business with the Father. And not only is the heir, not only is the is he the heir, but he's also the eternal son. And it was through him that creation came. I mentioned John 1 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The Son is the eternal Son who was with God in the beginning because he was God. Jesus is the beginning and the end. And the doctrine of creation, the doctrines of, of redemption are linked together because the God who creates is also the God who redeems. I explained this uh, link 
last week when I talked about the four parts of the gospel message of, of God is the one who creates, we men are the ones who sin, and Jesus is the redeemer, and we respond through in repentance and faith. And it reminds me of an analogy that I read once in C.S. Lewis's book, Surprised by Joy. He talks about an unbeliever who considered the impossibility of knowing God. And his thinking was is that God is the creator, and God creates us, created us in the same way that a writer creates his characters. And so the gap is so vast between God, the creator, and us, the creation, that we can't know God any more than, you know, than Hamlet could know Shakespeare. You know, Shakespeare, the playwright who wrote the play Hamlet. How could Hamlet know Shakespeare? That doesn't even make sense, does it? And how could we know God? God is the creator. There's that kind of a gap between us and him. And then he realized, because after thinking a little bit further, he realized that this analogy suggested maybe the opposite. For Shakespeare, he said, as creator, he could make it possible. Just extend this analogy with me, if you will, in your minds. Shakespeare, in principle, he could write himself into the play and dialogue with Hamlet in the play. The Shakespeare, then, who's the writer, would, of course, be both the Shakespeare, the writer, and one of Shakespeare's characters at the same time. So you see what I'm saying? It is an imperfect analogy, but God the Father did write himself into life in the Son and made the ultimate communication with his creation. He condescended. He came down to be with us and to be one of us so that we could understand him. We... God doesn't need to try to understand us. He's the one who made us. So it's a perfect analogy, but it's an analogy that, that helps us to understand the magnificence of the incarnation, that God, the Son, became one of us. And so let's let Scripture do the final talking here in verse 3. And I want us to look at five ways that we see the supremacy of God's final revelation. First of all, we read that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, your Bible might say radiance as reflect the brightness. It's one of those words that doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. It means radiance, stunning, extreme brightness like the sun. The Old Testament had a couple words for, for glory. One was kabod, which meant heaviness, but another was shekinah, the shekinah glory of the Lord. And this was the visible glory of God demonstrated in the majesty of God at the Exodus where you could see his glory and then at the dedication of Solomon's temple. So his glory had to take a form and it took the form of a cloud and in Hebrew is called Shekinah, the glory. And that's who Jesus is, the glory of God clothed in human form. But even more important than that, secondly, he says that Jesus is the exact imprint or impression or image of his nature. And so the Father's divine nature is exactly the same as the Son's. Again, this is a phrase that's only found in the, in the New Testament right here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And it completes it and adds to the picture of what he just said in the phrase right before this. What does it mean that he's clothed in the radiance of the glory of God? Well, what he means is that he is the exact impression or imprint or image of the Father. The, 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 Greek, uh, the Greek word there is, was used in other parts of uh, literature to describe like 
a mold that you would get something warm like wax and then you would press an imprint into it. I think of Play-Doh because I have kids. So Play-Doh is moldable and then some of the Play-Doh things come with like a little hamburger and then you press it into that and it makes the exact imprint of that mold. It's the exact image. And so this word was originally used to, to mean that marking that you created, that was the image that was created. And so what we see is that what he's saying is that Jesus is the exact imprint, the exact image of the Father in heaven. And so if you're going to know the Father, you got to know the Son. And if you got to know the Son, you would know the Father. When Jesus was trying to explain this to his disciples in John chapter 14, he says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. For now, from now on, you do not know him, uh, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip, one of the apostles, said, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So you're asking for me to teach you about the Father, show you the Father. I'm here. Hello? And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's basically, Hebrews 1.3, saying the exact same thing. Is to, if you want to know the Father's, what the Father is like, then look at the Son. If you want to know what the Father's heart is, look at the heart of the Son. Because that is the heart of the Father. We know who God is because Jesus was here. Jesus came. And then thirdly, it says here that the Son uh, is the sustainer of the Father's creation, upholding the universe by the word of his power. Now, this isn't a passive voice here like, you know, Atlas with the world on his shoulders. That's not, he's, he's, this is an active verb here of using, um, upholding creation. And the writer is very specific here. He doesn't use the word, word like we saw in John 1, logos, which indicates revelation. Instead, he uses the word for word here is rima, which is the spoken word. So just as the universe was called into existence with a spoken word, it's the utterance of the sun that sustains the universe as well. And so if the sun would ever stop upholding the universe, if, then the universe would, would not be here anymore. And fourthly, as we talk about the supremacy of God and the revelation of the sun, the author moves to his priestly work. Now we're going to return to this later on in the book of Hebrews in chapters 9 and chapters 10. And this is like an introduction. Like I said, if this was a sermon, or if we read it like a letter that was meant to be read aloud, the whole thing, you would see he's kind of introducing the topic here when he's talking about the priestly work of Jesus. He says, after making purification for his sins. And so what he's doing here is he's quickly joining who Jesus is with what Jesus has done. Jesus is the means of forgiveness of the Father's creation. And so his once-for-all act of dying on the cross means that sinful man, the creation, can be reconciled to the holy God, our Father in heaven. And his work was, was the purification of sins, the cleansing of our sins. So I think it's interesting here in verse 1, he started by talking about the prophets. And I said that Jesus was, the son was like the greater prophet. Well, then he talks about Jesus' priestly work, that Jesus is the greater priest, making purification for our sins, the only priest that we need. And now, number five in our list of the supremacy of Christ, he talks about the kingly authority, how Jesus is the king, because it says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
Now, the right hand was the place of prominence. The right hand was the place of authority. For Christ to be at the right hand of the majesty means that he is above all powers and he rules over the cosmos. You know, the original sentence here in Hebrews chapter 1, it doesn't end with verse 3. It goes on in verse 4, talking about how now Jesus is also supreme over all the angels. But I want to end here at the end of verse 3 and then pick it up again next week, beginning in verse 4. Because verse 4 kind of ends the introduction and then it goes into the first key theme, which is about how Jesus is, is greater than the angels. All throughout the book of Hebrews, the, the title of the sermon series is Jesus is Greater. Because like I said, the whole point of this is that we can see that Jesus is superior and his, his work is sufficient for us. And so I want to leave you with this. First of all, understanding this, that God has spoken. Are you listening? God speaks. Do you listen? Don't ignore the parts of the Bible that are called the part of the Old Testament, if you will. Understand that it is full of good news as well. And you may understand the parts of the New Testament better as you look back at the beginning. Secondly, remember that Jesus is supreme. It is hard to believe how wonderful Jesus is. It's hard to put into words the incarnation. Preachers, pastors struggle with it all the time. You know, you look at it trying to explain what it means. Like I said, that little analogy that C.S. Lewis uh, wrote about, because it's so hard, you know, even as we think of it, it's like we're afraid our heads are going to explode, right? To think that God became one of us. Every analogy is going to be imperfect. And so reflect on that. Meditate on that. Think about how wonderful it is that God loved you so much that he came to rescue you. And you didn't need just a little bit of help. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. You needed life. And that's why Jesus came. Are you listening to him this morning? And do you know what Jesus is doing? I want to leave us with this. What is Jesus doing now? That he has ascended into heaven. It says here in Hebrews 1.3 that he is seated at God's right hand. What's he doing now? Well, like I said, we'll get into this whole fact that the matter that he is seated. I don't have time to get into that. We're going to see it later in Hebrews. He makes a point to say that he is not just at the right hand of the Father, but he is seated at the right hand of the Father on high. But you know what he's doing? Well, we read about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and 37. And I want to leave you with this, these words from Romans chapter 8, 31 to 37. It says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us.